According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10, getting ready to wrap up this chapter and move on into chapter 11. Lord willing and rapture pending. Proverbs 11. There's 31 Proverbs, of course, or chapters, so we're about a third of the way through. And uh, that's a little bit misleading because I'm suspicious that that really the bulk of 10 through 24 is going to go much quicker um, because a lot of it's redundant. A lot of the uh, principles that we get into in chapter 11, we've already covered in chapter 10, and that's only going to happen again and again and again and again in the the upcoming chapters. So uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how the Lord leads and how the study goes and uh, what this class goes into, and then really how much longer it's going to be uh, before uh, before we have to follow it up with something else. And I, I asked, I think I mentioned the other day, I was asking for prayers on this because my studies in Hebrews are going so well, and I'm enjoying Hebrews, and I'm wondering, I've wanted to teach Hebrews for so long now, um, and I just don't know where to plug it in. Is is Hebrews going to follow Jeremiah, and we're going to do it chapter by chapter on on, a, on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock? Or is Hebrews going to follow um, the Pauline epistles, and, uh, and and we'll do it Sunday morning and Wednesday night, do it verse by verse, and take about twelve years to teach it? Um, or uh, is is it going to come on Wednesday mornings? Is is Hebrews going to going to be in this format in uh, and follow uh, uh, follow Proverbs? So um, anyway, just need guidance on that, and and Jeremiah will be the the class that gets finished first, and then. Uh, Probably Proverbs will be the class that gets finished next uh, before, because after Galatians, we're doing Philippians, uh, Colossians, Ephesians. I'm already committed to, to doing those four epistles. So anyway, um, Lord's in charge. That's the best part. I'm simply asking for your prayers for guidance and wisdom on this. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our studies and to bless our time and his truth today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you for the living and abiding word of God. And there's so many things. We've got some prayer items at the moment. We're just laying them before you, asking for your perfect timing, asking for your perfect will. And I just thank you for being so faithful. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, we are in the final portion of the chapter here as we break it down for you. It's point 13, and uh, a kind of a cover point to handle everything then that follows. So under point 13, chapter 10 concludes with a long chain of disconnected life principles. And uh, we may, as we transition into uh, chapter 11, say the long chain of disconnected life principles continue, <laughs> all right, continuing into chapter 11. And honestly, I don't understand why there's a chapter break between chapter 10 and chapter 11, uh, only maybe just because they decided, well, that's long enough for a scroll, or we ought, probably ought to put a new chapter in here at this point um, related to that. Um, Likewise, I think some of them are rather arbitrary between uh, these chapters from chapter... You can't just have one monster chapter from chapter 10 to chapter 25, although, um, why not? All right, but here we have it. 
And so under this, uh, we've come down through subpoint H. Wow, so we have an A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H. And um, we talked last week and the week before uh, from verse 27 about lifespans. This was subpoint F in the outline. Life may be lengthened or shortened as conditional options within the plan of God. And I should rewrite that point to make sure that we understand it's, it's our physical life on this earth. It's our biological life. Did those glass doors get opened, Doug? All right. It's our biological life that may be lengthened or shortened, the time of our mortality upon this earth as conditional options within the plan of God. God's in charge of that. And uh, we can rejoice in this. And, and through, of course, sin and death and, laws, and uh, laws of divine discipline and other aspects, our physical life can be shortened as, as God's judicial judgment upon us here in time. Or it may be lengthened. Honor your father and mother. And we have promises related to the lengthening of life that can happen as well within the plan of God. And this point was huge. I'm not going to dwell on it this morning because I think I belabored it long enough last week and the week before. But I want us to start thinking on, on a broader scope of things as far as God's plan is concerned. That uh, it's not just a, a rigid X number of days and that's it. All right, It's X, Y, and Z. It's, it's, a, it's a fully comprehensive plan that includes contingencies. All right? And that those are God's contingencies that he's baked into the plan. And so uh, we can understand this as well, Contingen, uh, contingencies that come about that are provided as conditional options. Under point G, we asked, what are our eternal hopes and expectations? Do we have hopes and expectations? And are they shaped by the Word of God? Are they shaped by divine viewpoint? Are they shaped by wisdom as we are walking in the light? Because for the believer dwelling in the Word of God, every hope and expectation is gladness. All right? A disciple occupied with Christ cannot be a pessimist. I know that I'm the biggest pessimist in this room. All right? But that's in carnality. That's in humanity. That's in um, earthly expressions apart from the truth of the Word of God. Because when I stop to cycle the doctrine, when I stop to think things through, when I stop to orient, you cannot be a pessimist, say and uh, the aspects there. So we have these verses here on gladness. And uh, he, um, uh, what we have in Proverbs 10 and verse 28. So I'm going to read the wrong verse there. Chapter 10 and verse 28. Uh, the hope of the righteous is gladness, but the expectation of the wicked perishes. And so in the poetry of this, of course, there's hope versus expectation, there's righteous versus wicked, there's gladness versus perishing, there's a lot of parallels that happen, and that's the, the nature of, of the Hebrew poetry on this. Um, what is it that the unbeliever can expect? Do they have any hope, <laughs> right? And honestly speaking, they have no hope as Scripture defines hope. If you want to talk about elpis and elpizo you know, from, the, from the Greek vocabulary, you want to talk about the Hebrew vocabulary, they have no hope. They might use the word hope, but they don't have hope as Scripture defines hope for us in the body of Christ. And uh, I think this is a, uh, it's a delight as well. All right, then uh, last week we were focusing on our dwelling places. Pick your residence. Do you want to live in a stronghold or do you want to live in a ruin? Okay, and it's a volitional matter. It's, it's up to you. What do you want to live in as you're occupied with Christ? Um, stronghold or ruin. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright, but ruin to the workers of iniquity. And so, again, we have the contrast because there's the way of the Lord and then there's another way. 
There's an alternative, okay? The workers of iniquity, they're on a different path. They're not uh, pursuing the way of the Lord, all right? And uh, we have stronghold on the one hand. We have ruin on the other hand. We have the upright on the one hand, see? And um, in any event, there's uh, an opportunity here for, for us to consider the stability that we have as we identify with the Word of God. So for the believer dwelling in the Word of God, his temporal security is as guaranteed as his eternal security. And this is the stability that we have. Now, this is not a promise that says nothing bad will ever happen to you. All right? This is not a promise that if you, if you serve God, then you'll never, you know, uh, a hurricane will never hit your town, or an earthquake will never hit, or you'll never get laid off of work, or you'll never get sick. Or it, it's not a promise that you won't have any problems. The promise here is that you will spiritually be dwelling in a stronghold, that you will have the security and stability of of being defended by the Word of God. And as as stable and and total chaos can rage around you in in earthly terms, and you are at perfect peace in spiritual terms. What a delight. What an absolute confidence, see, as, uh, as we have it described here. And then we have other promises of Scripture, including 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 9, Psalm 18, Psalm 27, Psalm 31, Psalm 62. Look at all the doctrine that we have contained here in the book of Psalms, right? And, and to me, this is where it gets very practical. It gets very, um, you know, the rubber meets the road, we might say, all right? And it's, and, and it's sad to me. There's a lot of, there is a school of thought that minimizes Psalms and Proverbs, and within doctrinal circles, perhaps, whereby, you know, you, you, you want to stay in the Pauline epistles or stay in the New Testament or stay in Torah, stay in the Pentateuch or stay in, in, uh, in, in the history, stay in the, the portions of Scripture where you get real doctrine. Well, this is doctrine right here, all right? It just happens to be devotional. It just happens to be experiential. It tends to be very... Um, uh, maybe the best word I'm coming up with this morning is devotional, where it's, it's touching you in your heart, it's touching you in your soul, and in, in, in the reality of things. And there's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> okay? That's why there's so many Psalms and Proverbs. That's why it's such a huge chunk of the Hebrew canon, that, uh, that um, we need to take our, our doctrinal understanding and make it real in any event. And possibly I'm misestimating certain things, all right? Perhaps uh, I've misread certain conversations with certain pastors or certain doctrinal believers, and, and maybe I took their poo-pooing the wrong way when it comes to Psalms and Proverbs. So in all fairness, maybe I'm expressing something that's not true. All right, the last two issues, point I and point J, I want to look at verses 30, 31, and 32. The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. All right, we've got a promise here, and it's a promise that's looking forward. It's a promise that's on an eternal scope. We are to look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. You've heard that verse before? All right, it's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, but concepts precede it. Concepts are throughout Scripture that relate to what we're looking for. That we're looking for the reward, we're looking for the glory, we're looking for the prize. Uh, we, we understand that Moses was looking to the reward. He wasn't looking to the riches of Egypt. We understand Abraham was looking to the reward. He was looking for a city whose, whose builder is God, a city made without hands, all right? So it is according to his promise that we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
The way of the Lord is a... uh, I'm sorry, verse 30. The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. And to put this verse on an eternal scale is, is the best way to handle it and will cause... It will solve many of the conundrums and the dilemmas that other people struggle with when they view this as an absolute promise and then they, they call God a liar because they just got through being shaken. <laughs> All right? So let's understand this for what it is. What it's saying, what it's not saying. The righteous will never be shaken. What does that mean? Okay? Does that mean I don't have problems? I don't have testing? I don't have moments of carnality? Well, of course, none of that is, is, is true. We have, to, we have to interpret this verse in, in, in context with all of Scripture. With the totality of what we understand, the Bible describes for born-again believers. And we're going, to have, we're going to have tribulation. Jesus promised that. In this world, you will have tribulation. But what does he say? Be of good courage, I have overcome the world. All right? So in spite of all the terrible things that happen in, in, in the angelic conflict in our Christian walk, we should have an eternal perspective that says, you know what? Jesus has already won. He has overcome the world. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That what we're dealing with right here is just momentary light affliction, see? And then we can drill down and start to ask ourselves, what does this mean to be shaken? Maybe it's a bigger thing than just having problems. Maybe it's a bigger concept in view than than the typical testing or conflict or struggles that that every believer has. It's common to to the believing experience. Well, we understand shaken actually biblically is used in a number of ways, particularly on on a global scale. It's used on a national basis. It's used in the sense that we have a kingdom which cannot be shaken, all right? In terms of what Israel received when they were given the law at Mount Sinai and the earth trembled all right and they were terrified to go up on the mountain and uh, they sent moses up there and said you report back to us because they were afraid of the, the 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 smoke and the fire and the shaking mountain all right so the idea of shaking carries with it a tremendous amount of of doctrine that, that pertains to our position in christ and in obedience to the word of god and and so forth and this should uh, hopefully be clear as well when we bring in these other passages as well, including Psalm 15, Psalm 37, Hebrews 12, and Haggai, uh, the prophet Haggai, all right, which gives us the backdrop for Hebrews 12. Uh, but uh, so the righteous will never be shaken and, and realize that this is taking us forward to an eternal destiny. Understand, this is taking us beyond. Once we're, once we're in the, the uh, fullness of times, once we're in eternity future, in both cases, we have this no more sickness, no more tears, no more death. The first things have passed away. We are now locked. Once we get to the fullness of times, we will then be locked into that, that beautiful realm of never, right? Never sinning, never dying, never shaken. That's when all of these beautiful nevers can be fully effective. But the wicked... Where are they going to be? All right. Where are the wicked going to be? Once we get to our never be shaken promise, where are they going to be? Well, they're not going to be in the land. They're not going to be on earth. They're going to be in the lake of fire for all eternity. And we have a stress there as well. Once you get to Revelation 21 and 22, how many times once we have the new heavens and new earth described, are we told, by the way, the sinners aren't going to be there? (laughs) Okay. They're not going to be on the new earth. They're not going to be in the heavenly Jerusalem. They're not going to be in the temple. Time and time and time again, Revelation 21 and 22 reminds us the wicked aren't there. The wicked will never enter there. And these, uh, these become great promises to us as well. So 
Anyway, I think the best way to handle verse 30 is to view it as, a, uh, as an eternal destiny, to view it on the eternal scale of things, and not to, not to try to claim it as an absolute promise in the here and now. Because here and now, before, the, before the, the new heavens and new earth, there will be wicked people dwelling in the land, all right? And there will be righteous people who get shaken in a variety of applications, in, 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 in uh, persecution and, and tribulation and, and uh, moral failure and, and everything else, okay? So now let's look at some of these other passages that I find to be parallel, that I think are uh, marvelous exhortations for us to look to the new heavens and the new earth so that we don't get all depressed with uh, politics or economics or um, anything earthly. Our baseball team didn't make the playoffs, so now who cares? Or, or they made the playoffs, but they got bounced in the division round, so now who cares? Like, I really give a hoot about the Indians or the Blue Jays. I mean, really, or the Dodgers. Goodness, who, who, looks, who likes the Dodgers? I guess I can root for the Cubs, only so they can quit finally whining about it after all these years, and then, uh, <laughs> but then again, there's some prominent high-profile Cubs fans out there that I don't really want to line up with. So, All right, let me get back to Scripture here, Psalm 15. And the point is, all of these passages are serving to remind us that this world is not our home. We're looking for the new heavens and new earth, all right? So in Psalm 15, uh, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And we have a marvelous, it's, 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 a, it's a contemplative psalm, it's um, devotional, it's, it's pondering a question, a rhetorical question, and then answering the rhetorical question, when really, in human terms, who are we? Why do we think we belong there? Why do we think that we would possibly dwell there? So who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Because I know I'm, I'm sick of this place, okay? I'm, I'm tired of living in my house on this planet. Uh, how about with that? Can I live with you, Lord? Wouldn't that be better? Well, the problem is, though, of course, he's a holy God and, and demands perfection. And so to approach that, that degree of holiness, I, I don't qualify, see? And so he answers the question, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Okay? And, and we have a messianic prophecy in this because these, this psalm is pointing to the, to the Messiah. It's pointing to the one and only who des- deserves it. The one and only that's entitled to be with the Father because he's been with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And we have a, a messianic prophecy here of perfection. Thankfully, that perfection gets expanded. The perfection gets extended to you and to me. Every righteousness that's his gets imputed to our account. And the blessings we have is we can read through this verse and say, well, I don't qualify, I don't qualify, I don't qualify. Jesus does, and he makes me to qualify. He supplies me that righteousness, that positional truth reality that is everything described here. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. You see, and this is why we have to cling to grace, because if it wasn't for grace, um, we're the reprobate in that verse, okay? We're not the righteous Messiah in this psalm. We are the reprobate. But in Christ, we're not the reprobate. 
In Christ, this is us. But who honors those who fear the Lord? He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He swears to his own hurt. You ever think about that? When he takes a vow, when he swears, when the Son agrees to all the plan of God, then that means he has to go to the cross. He will hurt. He will suffer. See? And he does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. And there is again, there's that expression, never be shaken. And we have a a mindset here where we're, we're considering eternity. We're considering dwelling with the Lord. All right? What a privilege that is. All right, well... Over to verse uh, Psalm 37 then. To me, though, these are, these are beautiful. I love these. And you think about the divine viewpoint. You think about the eternal perspective. <laughs> David had such a frame of reference for heaven, for dwelling with the Lord, see, for where the real temple was. Not the replica, the real temple. All right, Psalm 37. And here's a larger context for this. I'm I'm aiming for verses 28 and 29. Um, We have such a uh, contrast through here. In fact, this psalm, Psalm 37, in its entirety, um, so much of this comes out in Proverbs. So much of this must have impacted Solomon. The contrast of the righteous with the wicked, the the blessings of of living according to wisdom, the... um, you, see, you can spot it in verse uh, 14, how the wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow, and uh, with the conflict that happens there, and Solomon writes about it in terms of the liars whose, whose teeth are swords, and um, so much of this uh, gets reflected in the book of Proverbs. Verse 16, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. And you know, so many of these, you could put them in the book of Proverbs, Right? Uh, David could have written the Proverbs, except that God designed Solomon to, build, to, to write the Proverbs. All right. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. So we, we understand in this psalm, we're looking beyond time, and we're looking to eternity. Uh, so much of this deals with that. Uh, verse 19, they will not be ashamed in the time of evil. In the days of famine, they will have an abundance. So we have a perspective to struggle with uh, anything that happens in temporal life. The wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Get down to, uh, let's see, verse 22. Those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. Some of this we dealt with in Proverbs 10 when it comes to the memory. The memory of the righteous is forever. The memory of the wicked is cut off. Never again to be remembered. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. Boy, we can cling to this. This, Robert, this was Robert's favorite passage in, when, in, in prison. He, he, uh, he would cite this constantly. That uh, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. Isn't that great? And the, 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 the vision on this, the image of this is, is like a toddler holding on to his parent's hand. You know, you've got three-year-old grand, grandchildren, right? I mean, they fall down constantly. You know, they're, they're, they're constant trippers, right? They're, they're tripping and falling and whatever. 
toddling around. But when the parent or the grandparent, when someone's holding their hand, they can fall. They can trip and they can fall. And what happens? And it's kind of a neat image because they're so small, of course, and then their hand is way up here. And then they're just kind of dangling and twisting in the wind and kind of, you know, and so you just pick them up and plop them back on their feet again, make sure they're stable, right? So, all right, now you you keep on going, right? Isn't that a beautiful image? I love that image because that's this right here. This is us. God is holding our hand. And how often are we the, the dangling toddlers just twisting and dangling and all kinds of, I mean, it, it looks goofy, but that's us, okay? When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. What a thrill. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. You know, the believer who trusts in the word of God will never be disappointed. You will never regret living your life according to doctrine, ever. See, uh, verse 27, depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. This is what we have to look forward to. We're living our life here and now according to the standards of the Word of God, but we're looking forward to then and there. We're looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Everything we're doing here on time should be geared to that because this is so quick, so fleeting, so soon, it's over before we know it. 80 years, 90 years, 100, however long we get to live here, and it is so short, and the consequences are so eternal. Say, we're looking to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, how about Hebrews? Hebrews uh, 12, 25 through 29. And the basis for this comes in Haggai. I guess we'll do Hebrews first and then back up to Haggai. Hebrews 12. And, uh, goodness, so much in this chapter, but... Um, the stability that we should have, the thankfulness we should have for discipline. All right, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. The whole chapter is about having the, the right perspective and accepting the discipline and living, living according to that discipline. And then uh, the expectations that are, that are so high. All right, so verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and to the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For if they uh, could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Okay. Now, I hope that's on video. I want to see that when we get to heaven. Now, imagine how awesome that must have been. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, which uh, and into the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Man, 
There's the passage, <laughs> okay? Um, how much doctrine there? But there's the contrast, right? Earthly mountain versus a heavenly mountain. A people that were earthly in their, in their thoughts, earthly in their laws. They were an earthly nation in the midst of Gentile nations. We are a heavenly people, see? And, and so as, as Hebrews draws this contrast, and we've already seen through Proverbs and Psalms, David and Solomon and, and so forth, an Old Testament believer was able to have a heavenly perspective, Right? Even with their earthly context, they had a heavenly perspective. We start with a heavenly context. And how much more should we have that heavenly perspective, right? And the sad thing is, I think we don't. I think all too often, we get our eyes off the Lord, we get our eyes off of heaven, and we start paying attention to the things below. When Colossians says, stop, pay attention to the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so, you, you look at this contrast here, and, and again, Go back and reread Psalm 37. And you see the incredible heavenly perspective that David had. And yet you come to this passage here and realize, what's our excuse? We should have an, a heavenly perspective because we're there. We have already arrived at the, the heavenly Mount Zion. We've already arrived at the city of the living God. We've already arrived at the heavenly Jerusalem. We've already arrived where the myriads of angels are. We've already arrived at the general assembly in the church of the firstborn. We are the church of the firstborn. We're seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ as he's seated at the right hand of God. And to the myriads of angels. All right. Anyway, so here we are. To the, uh, to the, and to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to the mediator. All right. This is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we're there. The kingdom's not on earth yet, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, as it is in heaven, where are we? We're, we are as it is in heaven. That's right. We're a heavenly citizenship. Our treasure's in heaven, our attention's in heaven, our, our uh, dealings are in heaven. So see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In other words, you've got to be a disciple. You've got to be living out the word. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less we will escape will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Now in our Old Testament law, there were warnings given, and they had to walk right. And the judgments were ferocious. Most of them were stoning, right? And in violation of the law, there was consequences, immediate consequences. We have warnings too. But our warnings are coming from Christ, not Moses. Our warnings are coming from heaven, not earth. And our consequences are severe. Because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All right. Um, so for those who did not, uh, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Church age apostasy is more severe than Old Testament apostasy. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised. See? According to his promise. We better be paying attention to this. He has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Okay? Yet once more. There is a shaking coming up. And it's not just going to be an earthquake, earth shake. It's going to be a heaven shake. Heavens and the earth, 
This expression, yet once more. Okay? It's not just your goofy pastor making a big emphasis on it. The author of Hebrews is making a big emphasis on it. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken. (laughs) You know, if it's not shakable, you can't shake it. Removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. What remains is then unshakable. And we ourselves, unshakable. It's like in 1 Corinthians 15 when we're putting off the perishable and we're putting on the imperishable. Okay, The perishable is shakable. The imperishable is not. There's the earthly, there's the heavenly. There's all those contrasts in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and here we have it applied to the entire universe. This present heavens, this present earth are shakable. Not so in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the removing of the shakable things. So what's, what remains is the unshakable. Therefore, since we receive, verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Again, the provision is up front. The behavior is a reflection. The behavior is a response. The behavior is, is appreciation. Nothing in this text is is about works. Nothing in this text, uh, it's all grace. We we don't understand this. We're not working hard to deserve this. We can't. We've received this kingdom which cannot be shaken. Because we receive this kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He is the God of Mount Sinai. And worse, he is the God of Mount Zion in the heavenly places. And that's who we stand before. And so we should have reverence and awe. We should serve him with fear and trembling. The perspective is, uh, is a beautiful thing. All right? And in and, and all grace, do you see any works in any of this? <laughs> do you see uh, anything in this text that, that, where, that would motivate us to try to do all these good things so we can earn a deserve heaven? That's, that's off the table right from the very beginning. We can't earn or deserve any of this. Who are we? But we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Therefore, we now live out this salvation in fear and trembling. We work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We live out our, the Christian walk in reverence and awe before Him. It is thankfulness that motivates our, our uh, reverence. And I think that the believers who lose sight of that, they lose sight of the reverence because they lose sight of the, the grace that saved them. You know, the woman wiping his feet with her hair and in her tears and, and in contrast with the Pharisee who was pretty prideful and full of himself, right? If he was even saved at all. I doubt that he was even saved at all. But if he was, uh, he's so prideful now at this point that he's useless in the Christian walk. All right? And and you start getting so full of yourself thinking that, well, I deserve this or I'm better than that person. You're no better than that person. It's all grace. Anyway, when you you identify that you've been forgiven by so much, then you will love the more. You will love that much more. And uh, I think this is what it is here too. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service of reverence and awe. That, That should be in our thinking. 
every sermon I preach, every gospel you give, every Sunday school class, everything that's done, every volunteer hour in the nursery, every uh, every uh, whatever janitorial work that gets done around here, uh, cutting the grass, dumping the trash, scrubbing the toilets, whatever it is. Just think, man, who am I? I get to serve the body of Christ. I get to serve the Lord. I get to show gratitude. And I don't deserve any of this. For our God is a consuming fire. All right. Backdrop for this comes in Haggai, Haggai 2. The verb hog, the, 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 the verb and the noun, Haggai means festive. And I wonder. <laughs> he doesn't exactly seem like a party animal to me, but um, anyway, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And uh, his message certainly wasn't fun and games because he, he was like a drill sergeant. Comes on the scene and chews him out and says, what are you guys doing? Why is this temple not built yet? They've been back from Babylon for how long now? And they're working on their own houses, their own farms, their own crops. And, and it's just taken too long to get the temple built. And uh, if, if Zechariah and, and Haggai don't show up to really kick them in gear, it probably never would have gotten finished. All right. So Haggai 2, um, let's see here, verses 1 through 9. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And I love Zerubbabel. What a, what a humble man. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And to the remnant of this people, saying, so here's, here's this message, and Haggai gets to preach this to these two guys, to the governor who should be king, is not, and to, the, and to the high priest, all right? Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And, and, and these two guys, and together they're going to paint a picture of Christ. Together they're going to be lampstands. Together they're going to be a, a type of what Christ will be in the millennial kingdom, because Christ will be prophet, priest, and king in the... Uh, in the millennial kingdom, right? So we get Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. What do you got right here? You got prophet, priest, and king all coming together. Um, anyways, it's, there's so much doctrine here. What was fun is when, when they come back from their captivity, Zerubbabel is the heir to the throne of David, but he cannot take that seat. It's the will of God for him to not take that seat, and plus the Persians won't let him take that seat. Okay, The Persians let them come back to live, but they're not reestablishing a, an independent Jewish throne. He's serving as a Persian governor. You, you add, man, what kind of humility does that take? All right, so here's the message. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Are there some old men left that lived through the 70-year captivity that were little kids? Do you remember what Solomon's temple was like? And now you're looking at it? Okay. You know, I don't know if... Uh, not many people can remember things from 70 years ago. You know, you got, you know and then those who do are up there in years where maybe their memory's not what it used to be. <laughs> so once you're old enough to, to, to even remember that there was, see what was 70 years ago, 1946? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm picking on Linty. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, what do you remember of 1946? You know, well, let me tell you about my kindergarten. Let me tell you about uh, being four years old or five years old or whatever. Okay. 
So those who remember the temple weren't exactly participants on an adult basis, right? I mean, like my memories of Sunset Hill Baptist Church. Uh, I can tell you a few things about it, but most of my memories were of the Sunday school and the nursery and the, the, the back door to the playground and, and, and things like that. I think there was a playground. Anyway, um, there was probably a lot more to it than, than that. My parents would be better telling you about that than me. But in comparison now, does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage. And, and I like the fact that he moves on from verse 3 and, and starts pointing them forward to glory in verses 4 and following. Because if we're not careful, you and I have a tendency, humanity has a tendency to camp on verse 3 for months and years at a time. To just camp on the good old days and the years gone by and then to sit there and mope to sit there and lament and sit there and, and grumble and think, man, things were rotten, you know? Where's the positive volition? Where's the Christian nation we used to have? Where's the believers positive to doctrine? Where's the, where's the righteous president? Where, you know, James Garfield preached gospel revivals when he was in the White House. Is that going to ever happen again? Okay? They held baptism services on the South Lawn. Is that going to happen again? We're going to have a president that can preach a gospel revival under a tent ever again. Say, well, you know, we could, we could sit on verse 3 for hours on end and days at a time and weeks, months, and years and never get past verse 3. How edifying is that, right? I can think back to Baraka Church in the heyday. Man, I can think back to the mid-70s, the late-70s, and, you know, man, Colonel Thien would be preaching verse by verse and exegeting from the Greek and the Hebrew. There'd be hundreds of people there on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night. They had Sunday school classes, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night. All right, we have Sunday school on the 11 o'clock hour, Sunday morning. Oh. All right. So do we stick on verse 3 or do we move past that? Let's move past that. <laughs> all right because god's future is bright and what we're looking for is the new heavens and the new earth um but now take courage Rubabel, declares the lord take courage also joshua the son of jehozadak the high priest and all you people of the land take courage declares the lord and work for i am with you declares the lord of hosts as for the promise which i made you when you came out of egypt my spirit is abiding in your midst so do not fear for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. So he's bringing them back from captivity, but he's reminding them of the Exodus. See this? This is the promise, okay? And it is according to his promise. We're looking for the new heavens and the new earth. So I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. How many times are we going to say this, Lord of hosts, right? Yahweh Tzivayoth, Yahweh Tzivayoth, Yahweh Tzivayoth. The Lord of hosts. Okay? I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. There's coming a day. And uh, the exodus, the regathering, the, the, the return from, from captivity, the return from Babylon, 
nothing compared to what Second Advent is going to be. Not as, as he brings about globally, brings about all the Jewish people into peace in, in, uh, in the promised land. And then, of course, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, but it's going to be the Lord of hosts that does it. It's going to take battle. It's going to take victory. It's going to take conflict. The forces of evil have to be destroyed. All right, finally then, point J, what wraps up chapter 10. (laughs) We've got acceptable announcements or we have perverted pronouncements. Acceptable announcements versus perverted pronouncements. Verses uh, 31 and 32, the last two verses here of Proverbs 10. Acceptable announcements edify in time and will be rewarded in in eternity, whereas perverted pronouncements defile in time and will be judged in eternity. And these get a little frightening, particularly since uh, um, if you talk a lot, you're going to be accountable. Okay, And I talk a lot. I'm accountable. We're all accountable. Every careless word spoken will come under judgment. Communication is one of the, the prime judgment criteria because God himself is a communicator. All right, let's, not, let's read the verses before we get lost on the point here. Black that out. Verse 31. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. All right, so here's a pair tandem. This, these two verses are a tandem, and they go together, and we've got the contrast with how we speak, what we say and how we say it. So we have mouth, tongue, lips, and so forth. And it's, it's either or, you'll note. It's either acceptable or perverted. I blanked it out so we could look at the verses. I'll, I'll unblank it here in just a moment. All right, I'll unblank it now. Here's the point. Uh, Acceptable announcements. You see, it's what is acceptable in verse 32, and then there's perverted in verse 31. So I'm calling those the perverted pronouncements. Do they edify or do they not edify? We're supposed to be seeking for the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. We're supposed to be edifying our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we edify, then it's profitable. All is lawful, but not all is profitable. All is lawful, but not all edifies. That's the key. Edification is, 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 is the tandem, is, is the definition of profitability. Do you want, to, you want it to be profitable at the judgment seat of Christ? Then it better edify here and now. It's that simple. And if you're tearing somebody down instead of building somebody up, then... Uh, there, there's going to be consequences, both at the judgment seat, but even now in time. That's what we're studying in Galatians 6. You are sowing to the flesh right here, right now. You will reap corruption right here, right now. So don't think it's, it's limited to what happens at the judgment seat. There's consequences here and now. All right, so are we flowing with wisdom? Are we uh, bringing forth what is acceptable? And you know you can't bring it forth if it's not in the heart to start with. Okay? That's why you've got to take the Word and treasure it in your heart. That's why you have to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Because if there's no doctrine dwelling within you, then we know what comes out of the heart. It's wickedness. See, 
We need to be renewed. We need to, to, to have the word dwelling richly in there so we can bring it out, so we can offer the encouragement. And don't think for a moment that you don't have this kind of wisdom. You do. Every believer does if you're a disciple, if you're learning the word of God. And don't think that, well, I just... See, here's the thing. If you are in fellowship and, and, the, and the Holy Spirit is leading you, then the things you say will be a blessing. And they may seem stupid to you at the time. <laughs> and you may say, well, I was dumb. Why did I say that? And, 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 and yet, for the ears that needed to hear the, uh, what you just said, there was nothing better that could have been said. See? And, and I'm speaking from Scripture, but I'm also speaking from experience. You know, you do some jail visits, you do some uh, hospital visits, you do some nursing home visits, you do some hospice uh, care visits, and, and you think, what can I say? You know, I mean, what is there to say? And you just pray and relax and trust the Holy Spirit. It'll be given to you. See, the Holy Spirit's not, not the moron that you think he is, because he's not, okay? And you just submit to him. And you say, Lord, I want to be an encouragement. And even if it's just whatever, just say, hey, you know, um, I heard a psalm yesterday. Can I share it with you? Or at Austin Bible Church, they were reading a, a passage. Can I share it with you? You never go wrong with Scripture, okay? Find a verse. Say something. And trust that the Holy Spirit is going to have the right word at the right moment in the right way. And this is what happens. So uh, the mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom. You're not the source of that wisdom. You're simply the conduit. The wisdom comes from God. The wisdom comes from His Word. So as long as it's His Word that's in there, let it flow. Let it flow. Again, the lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. So if you've you've taken that good fruit and received it and and received the Word implanted that's able to save the soul, that's what's going to come out. Turn that spigot on. See, that's what we're dealing with. On the other hand, the perverted tongue, uh, the mouth of the wicked. Make sure you're in fellowship before you attempt anything like this. <laughs> okay? Because it may be the person you're encountering here, maybe they're as carnal as, as, as you know, they're five kinds of carnal. And you're looking at them, and if you're not careful, there's going to be a reactor factor that's going to happen there. And you're going to, their carnality is going to hit you, and you're going to just trigger something, and you're going to go carnal too. Okay? Well, at that point, there's no ministry happening because at that point, you're both carnal. So you've got to stop. Step back. Confess that. Get back in fellowship. Because now you're dealing with this, with this, this dynamic, all right? And you want your grace to come the other direction as their ugliness is coming to you. See, they're bringing forth, it's a perverted tongue bringing forth what is perverted. I just like reading these verses because I like saying perverted. <laughs> okay? We live in a generation where there are no perverts because everybody's a pervert and they don't, how dare you call it that? And uh, they, they've redefined perversion as alternative or normal and we're supposed to celebrate perversion. And if you don't celebrate perversion, then you're a hater. Okay? And it won't be long. We are on the verge of it. It won't be long. And, uh, and I could go to jail for something like this. Let's look over at Proverbs 16 as it comes back again. Uh, 
verse 21, the wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The, the, the benefit to speaking the truth of the word of God it acts as a natural sweetener. It's going to resonate, particularly, I mean, the, the believers are going to hear it and get convicted. Understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. And, you know, it's kind of trite when people say, oh, well, follow your heart, listen to your heart. That's dangerous. Is your heart being shaped by the word of God? Well, then I'll go there, but I'll go there because of this passage, not because of what you're telling me to, okay? Am I being renewed in the spirit of my mind? Am I being transformed? Is my thinking being transformed? Is God creating within me a clean heart? I can listen to that. I can follow that. Otherwise, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Got to be very careful. The heart of the wise, all right, we can go with that, instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. That's when you know that the word of God is powerful because it's transforming you. You know it's going to be a benefit to whoever it is you're ministering to. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. So there's, uh, there's our provision there. Psalm 19 and verse 14. Psalm 19.14. Man, pray this every morning, right? Pray this uh, every time you get in a pulpit. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Pray for this all day, every day. Let the word of God transform you. I want to have right thinking. I want to have right words. I want to have right, and if I'm consistently in fellowship and I consistently have right thinking, then the, the, the words will flow from that. I don't have to worry about that. The words will flow from that if the thinking is adjusted properly. Matthew 12, Jesus spoke to this. Verses 36 and 37. And you'll notice, again, it's trees and fruit and uh, words that are spoken could be blasphemy. Early in the chapter, he's dealing with the unpardonable sin there. But in verse 33, he says, um, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Why would I want to make a tree bad? (laughs) but that's what it says all right verse 34 you brood of vipers how can you being evil speak what is good for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart the unbeliever has no option he's on he's fallen he's corrupt and that's that's all that fills his heart is darkness but we have the option we should stop filling our heart with darkness we should fill our heart with light fill our heart with truth not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. And that hurts, (laughs) okay? As I've got several careless words. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. It's the words that express where your heart is that reflects the standard of judgment. 
every careless word people speak. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment. And you'll notice it may the word itself may be a vulgar word. Paul used a vulgar word, but he used it to edify. Paul used a number of vulgar words that are in Scripture. So it's not the word itself that makes it vulgar. Only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. If the, if the moment needs that, then use that. It'll edify. So that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, I think that when we talk about the what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit, to quench, to resist, I think the immediate context helps define it in every place we have the expression. Here, the expression is related to our speaking. Are we, do we grieve the Holy Spirit when we don't speak the things that He's impelling us to speak? Or when we quench what He's impelling us to speak and then we, we uh, let the unwholesome words proceed? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander uh, be put away from you along with all malice. All right? And so depending on how you uh, structure the, the, the paragraph and depending on how you outline the, or diagram the sentences, um, is it better to think of uh, grieving the Holy Spirit in verse 30? Is, is it, has it, does it have a closer connection with the speaking of verse 29 or with the... Um, middle attitude, heart attitude of verse 31. That's a question I hope to solve before I teach Ephesians 4. <laughs> All right, Colossians 4, 6, our last verse for this morning. Colossians 4, 6. Verse 5 says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. We've got opportunity studies coming up in Galatians, so come back tonight for that. Verse 6 says, let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You know, humanity struggles with this. A lot of us struggle with this. Not everyone. Some people are natural, I don't know, natural debaters or natural uh, comebackers or whatever. I don't know. I'm glad I'm not. I'm glad that it doesn't come naturally to me, because um, I, I would much rather be completely unskilled in that and, and just stay in fellowship and trust that whatever, whatever does come out is, is from him and not from me. You know, I mean, I'm always thinking about a conversation an hour later, two hours later going, oh, I should have said this, you know, and then, or waking up the next morning, you know, being woken up from sleep saying, why didn't I say this? Okay, that's me. Um, and maybe that's a lot of us. And maybe that's a good thing. Knowing how you should respond to each one. I, I, I would not want to just be so trained and so drilled and such a, such a skilled debater. Where is the debater of this age anyway? Whereby whatever comes to me, boom, I've got to come back. I've got to come back. I'm ready for this. I'm ready for that. Okay? I don't know. I guess there's a place for that. That's, it's just not my ministry, I know. Um, in any event, one thing you never go wrong with, though, is grace. Respond with a grace in a grace way. Respond in a grace way is like salt. It's seasoned. It's preservative. It's flavorful. And so there we see it. All right, well, that wraps up chapter 10.
We'll pick up chapter 11 next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this study. I call upon your faithfulness, Father, to provide in the upcoming chapters. Uh, there is a significant amount of repetition and redundancy. And um, Father, I'm asking for your guidance and how to prepare the notes and how to outline the chapters and, and uh, deal with uh, each topic, even though uh, many of them are topics we've already dealt with. So be, uh, be faithful and shape the, shape the preparation, shape the message. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.